yeah, we're going to get started in a couple of minutes. Did you have any comments, Lily? Oh, just to see the guests that are coming into the room are truly thought leaders in this space. We're going to learn so much. It is just going to be thought-provoking and cutting edge and really change the discussion. So I'm so glad we're all able to meet like this. Definitely. Such a great space to have amazing conversations. And I'm really, really honored and excited to be here. Before I jump into key point number one, why don't I introduce myself a little bit so you know who I am? Because how can I talk about my identity issues if you don't even know my identity? My name is Pona Tran. I am Chinese born in Canada. My parents were born in Vietnam. My mother tongue is called Vietju. And Vietju is a Chinese dialect which comes from the Chaoshan region in the eastern part of Guangdong province. So how was it that I came to be born in Canada? That's always such a confusion for people. So let's dive in. I took a quote from an article in a magazine or a publication called Northwest Asian Weekly. And let me read it to you here. Civil wars during ancient times and the early famines that occurred in China in the 18th to 20th centuries caused massive numbers of Vyoju people to migrate and settle in neighboring countries, such as Cambodia, Thailand, Laos, Singapore, Malaysia, Korea, and Vietnam. Okay, so that was the first sort of massive migration here. And as you can see from my family name, my name is Pona Tran. For anybody who knows, Tran is a Vietnamese last name. And so that's how my parents got to be born in Vietnam. And they decided to change their name to Tran. And for those of you who may not know, it's the equivalent to the Chinese Chan or Chen or some other Romanized variation. So there's that. And then the next waves of immigrations led the Adu people to permanently settle in countries such as the United States, Canada, Australia, and France. So as you can see here, I was born in Canada. I still have a lot of family back in Vietnam, and I was so grateful and fortunate to have been able to visit them in 2016 um, for the first time ever in my life, which was fantastic. All right, so my dialect... The Chinese dialect, the Aju, is what you could consider a heritage language. So let me read you the definition of a heritage language that I got from OxfordBibliographies.com. Heritage languages include the languages of many indigenous populations, as well as those of immigrants and their descendants. Heritage languages are marginalized or subordinated with respect to the dominant or official language or languages of a nation or territory. So there you go. My mother tongue is the Oju, and my dominant language is English. Now you have a bit of background. Let's go back and look at the three key points. Number one, what were my identity issues? Number two, how I snapped out of it or overcame my issues. And number three, rebuilding the bridge. Okay, so let's get started. 
The first point is, what were my identity issues? These issues can be described in two broad categories, which are rejection of the language and denial of belonging. So the first one, rejection of the language, what does that mean? It means that when I was born, and I was the first born, I only spoke Biochu until I started going to school. Because obviously when my parents took me home from the hospital, they weren't going to be speaking to me in any other language except for their native language. That's the language we naturally speak to our children in, right? It's the one that feels closest to our hearts. So until I started going to school, that was the only language I spoke. However, when I started going to school, nobody outside of the home spoke it. So I favored English, and I would actually refuse to speak Biochu at home. Little did I know that this language rejection was also a rejection of my family history, how I got here in Canada. All of this I took for granted. Now I want you to have a picture in your head and imagine this. Imagine poverty, imagine refugees, war, long voyages on ships, pirates, deception, little white lies, and pleading with authorities. These are all things that I now know that members of my family had to deal with in order to get themselves to Canada. So this includes my grandmother, my uncle on my mom's side, and my parents. They actually, my parents flew here, but my, my grandmother and grandfather and my, and my mom's brother, so my uncle, they came here on a boat. Very fascinating. I didn't know all of this back then. So imagine all of these things, this whole journey that I just had no idea about, that I was completely ignorant about, and the fact of me not wanting to speak my language was almost like pulling the, you know, blind over this whole history. So what would happen was when my parents spoke Biochu at home, I would respond in English. I would, it wasn't even a translation thing. It was like, I understood everything, almost like my brain translated everything in English and I just responded in English. And I had a friend at school whose mom would actually hit her in the hand with a chopstick if she didn't speak Cantonese at home. <laughs> um, my parents didn't do that to us, thankfully. They, I mean, I got hit in the hand with a chopstick for other reasons, but not speaking our language was not one of them. And so actually, my parents are multilingual. They were born in Vietnam, but we are of Chinese heritage, so they can speak Mandarin, Cantonese, Vietnamese, Biochu, and then when they came to Canada, they learned English. So when my mom speaks, doesn't matter what language she speaks in, she will infuse all kinds of words from all kinds of languages into her speech. So growing up, I actually learned and still understand lots of Cantonese words and lots of names for food in Vietnamese, even though I don't speak either of those languages. And I always thought that they were my dialect until I grew up and learned better. <laughs> even with all of this, 
I still had it in my head that English was superior. So that just shows the extent of how much I marginalized my mother tongue and, um, you know, just wanted to speak English all the time. So that encapsulates the rejection of the language. Now we're going to jump into the second part of the identity issues, which is denial of belonging. What I would do growing up was I would disassociate myself from Chinese people from China, the ones who didn't have English as a first language. I would disassociate myself from them because I had this, quote, I'm not like them mentality or the I'm better than them because I was born in Canada mentality. And thinking back to that now, it really shocks me to the core about how at a young age, I already had this, the West is superior mindset. And that just goes to show the indoctrination that happens without us being aware of it so early. It happens so early. We're not even aware that this is getting into our heads, that we just assume that, you know, the West is better. I don't want to be Chinese. I want to be essentially a white person. So I would try to act, quote, not Chinese, whatever that meant. Of course, it was all in my head because what can you even say? How can you act a certain culture? <laughs> um, and this was because Chinese people were made fun of at school. I was definitely made fun of sometimes for my food or just for the way I looked. And so humans are animals with built-in survival instincts. We do whatever it takes to try and fit in and just survive and get through. And so I would do really silly things like not wear my Hello Kitty shirt to school, even though I wore it at home all the time, because I didn't want anyone to associate me with anything related to anything Asian. Like, it doesn't even matter if it was Korean, Japanese. These kids did not know the difference. They lumped all Asians into the same category, right? And so anything related to do with being Asian, I did not want any part of it. And so that was basically the denial of belonging that I experienced. And yeah, those two points, rejection of the language and denial of belonging, those were my identity issues. Of course, it is a lot, there's a lot more than that. It was a whole life of issues, but we don't have enough time to discuss all of them. I'm just going to take a breather right now. So I'm wondering, Lily, I saw a lot of mic flashing. I was wondering if you could give us your comments. Oh, Pona, that is just beautiful. You are a master storyteller. My fingertip is tired from all the wonderful points that you made. Just really, really resonated with me how so many people, Asian Americans here, because as you know, I'm in America, have been othering their own parents. And um, it breaks my heart. So I cannot wait for part three. <laughs> Yes, amazing. And now that we're in a bit of a break in the room, I'm going to take the time to sort of reintroduce what's happening. So this is the Lingua Cultura Experience Conference. You are listening to Canadian Born Chinese. The session is also subtitled Rebuilding the Bridge to Identity. My name is Pona Tran. I am a Chinese Canadian born in Canada, ethnically Chinese, with some Vietnamese cultural influences in there as well. Um, and also, because we have a bit of a break, I would like just to, you know, 
mix things up a little bit, Lily, could you give us a bit of an introduction to yourself, if you don't mind? I would be honored to. Our family has many intersections with your story. I'm 1.5 generation Chinese American. I've been very much using that term after I learned about it. And using the U.S. Census de definition, I am 1.5 generation because I came as a young child from Taiwan, where I was born, and my parents are originally from China. So they were caught up in exactly, as you said, civil war. Theirs was the 1948-1949 escape as refugees and then making their way to Taiwan and then coming here. So everything you spoke about really resonates with me. And forgive me if, if there are some sounds behind me. I'm taking care of my elderly mother. So I, too, have been on that Oh, bridge building journey that you have. And I'm sure our friends in the audience will also share their takes on how they have either othered their ancestors, othered their parents. I can't wait to have the storytelling begin. Thank you, Kona. Thank you so much, Lily, for sharing your side of the story. Yes. Um, it's so interesting to know what wars people's families had to go through for my family personally, it was, uh, well, back in the civil wars I just mentioned um, that my grandparents had to deal with when they were children. But then also when my family moved over to Vietnam, there was the Vietnam War that they had to deal with. Thankfully, they were born in the South region and the war was mostly happening in the North, so they weren't too, too affected. But um, there was some recruiting, I think it's called drafting, of soldiers that happened in the South as well. And so there's this whole story of my family trying to avoid their, their son or my, uh, my uncle, basically my mom's brother, from being shipped off to war because they knew it was gonna, he was going to die, <laughs> basically. So um, they had a register of boys who were 18. And they would come knocking on the doors every single day. Hey, where's your 18-year-old where's your kid or boy? It's always boys. Um, he needs to go to war. Where is he? And my family, they would hide him like between this wall that they had. <laughs> it looked like a, an artificial wall. On the, it didn't look like an artificial wall. It was an artificial wall. It just looked like a real wall. And they would come knocking every day. Where is he? Where is he? They'd say, oh, he's not here. He went abroad. Here, have some soft drinks. Have some beer. My grandparents are in the business of selling soft drinks and beer at a small family shops. They would hide my uncle there. So he never got to go to war. Well, got to. It was not an opportunity. He never went to war. But um, even so, like, as a person, he was a bit broken from that experience. I did get to meet him later on in my life. And you could just sense the trauma from him, you know. And it's, yeah, really unfortunate. He did live with us for a little while here in Toronto. But yeah. Lots of stuff that I just uh, definitely took for granted, didn't know anything about. The issues that I had in my life, you know, were, oh, I don't want to do my homework. Oh, I don't want to go to school. And I remember my mom saying to me, you have no idea how lucky you are. That your biggest problem is that you don't want to wake up and go to school, right? Here I am being concerned, oh, how do I get this boy to like me? Or how does my outfit look, you know? And it's just such trivial things that don't compare to anything that the people who brought me onto this into this world had to deal with 
you know? And so now I have a better view of the world, obviously. I'm 30 years old. If I hadn't snap out of it by now, you know, there's no hope. But <laughs> Lily, you've on mic. So what did you want to say? Oh, I was just tapping like crazy because your story, I'm sure, resonates with a lot of other friends in the audience. But for me, it was, you know, um, I forgot to mention that my parents were refugees. They got stuck, quote unquote, stuck from 1949 to 53 in then French Indochina. So I, I hope I can find through your um, ancestors. Maybe someday we'll find a linkage between our two families. But um, the Chinese, um, overseas Chinese or the Hua Chao in Vietnam, then French Indochina colony, unfortunately, really saved this group of refugee students. But, you know, back to that is exactly like your mother. Your mother must have met my mother because before we got her driver's licenses, mother would uh, like forget to buy some bread and say, you know, go back to the store. And we'd say, oh, it's so far to walk. And then she'd say, if I can walk out of China, you can walk to the grocery store for us. And so it's like, how do you ever top those parents who are refugees, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm done speaking. Speaking of walking, actually, um, it was actually hard to escape China during the wars back in the day. A lot of people actually did walk long distances. And I think my, my grandparents, and they were younger with their parents and so my great-grandparents, they walked great distances to get themselves out of China without getting caught and make it to Vietnam to just a new place. So it's just, yeah, if they can do that, we can definitely walk down the street <laughs> to a convenience store. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to continue on with the next part of the talk. We just finished with the first one, which was what were my identity issues? And we're gonna move into the second part, which is how I snapped out of it or overcame it. So there are two aspects to this to this section as well. There is desire for community, and then also thinking about my future and the next generation. So I'm just gonna jump right into the desire for community. Now, when I was in university and my brain started becoming more connected and I started learning critical thinking skills, what I realized was that the friends I felt closest with the ones that I felt like I could spend time with and not um, feel tired <laughs> being around were the East and Southeast Asians who spoke fluent English like me because I could be myself with them. We could talk about our parents and their behaviors and we'd be like, yes, they do that too. And we could talk about foods that we like and stuff like that. And so I found myself starting to seek Asian spaces and realizing that I wasn't the only one who had these identity issues. Currently, I'm just going to jump times, time frames here, so just however it makes sense for the talk. Currently, I'm in a language group with two other Chinese girls and we basically meet once a week to socialize and struggle through a Mandarin textbook together. <laughs> and it's a lot of fun and feels almost like a support group, which I really appreciate. Um, and now we're jumping back in time. I attended a workshop a few years ago on intercultural and intergenerational communication. And this was a special event for me because this was run by an organization run by East and Southeast Asians. 
and I saw my whole life experience reflected in others in the room. I realized that my language barrier difficulties and my difficulties connecting on a cultural level with my parents were common due to immigration and assimilation, lack of history or education of history on um, the history of my own people. And then I realized that there was nothing wrong with me. And one time I was in Chinatown here in Toronto and I heard two women speaking the Du dialect, my family's native dialect. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so what I pretended to do was I pretended to look through clothes on this rack just so I could stand there a bit longer and listen to them. <laughs> they, were, they were just talking about how, you know, so-and-so's son needs to exercise more. He's gaining a lot of weight recently, blah, blah, blah. And I know that what they were saying wasn't nice at all. These are just two gossiping aunties. We know the type well. Um, but hearing my dialect outside of my home is so rare that when it happens, it almost feels like I'm vibrating in a different dimension of space. <laughs> and this has only happened maybe three times ever in my entire life here in Toronto. But whenever it happens, I text my sisters about it immediately because it's so exciting. The other thing I started to do as well was I began to seek information on my own because my school never provided it to me about the history of Chinese people in North America. I started learning and started feeling so many things like deep in my core and in my heart when I was reading about all this, about how the, the Chinese built the railroad. I learned about the Chinese Exclusion Act. I learned so many things that I wondered why I never learned them in school. It was just like, this, this, this is part of our history. Why is this not taught in school? And through doing all of this work, I didn't realize that this was personal work at the time, but I was doing work on myself. I started seeing and understanding my own internalized racism. And so in 2015, I visited New York City and stumbled upon the Museum of Chinese in America. Didn't know it existed before I went. Stumbled upon it and I ended up spending three hours there. I felt so excited that there was an entire institution dedicated to the history about my identity, of being both Chinese and about being American at the same time. You don't have to choose, you can be both. And that's when I knew, you know, like I can be both. I don't have to be confused anymore. Ah, so, you know, these, ex these examples are, there, there are only a few examples, there are so many more, but again, we don't have time to get into all of them, but this is basically part of my journey to the desire for community. The next way that I overcame my identity issues was, learning about all of this, and then also thinking about my future and the next generation. Learning about the history of my identity and who I was, who I am. I finally started to understand the importance of language. Now, when we know a language, we know so much more than just words. We know so much more than just, you know, 
Apple, how do you say Apple? There's so much more than that. Behind language, there is a whole culture. There is a whole way of thinking, of being, of understanding the world. And when you pass down languages through the generations, you're passing down history, heritage, knowledge, a door into a whole new world. I have this mental visualization of, in my head of doors opening like in your head because it just opens places in your brain that maybe you didn't use before. And when you embody more than one culture, you have this mental expansion of literal doors opening and you have more compassion towards people who are not the same as you. And of course, I know all of this sounds very spiritual almost, right? So it was like having an awakening. And I had this very strong desire to get back to my roots, to come home to myself, essentially to heal. The other fact was that I did not like the idea of my mother tongue dying with me. It did not sit well with me and I felt completely compelled to fix this. Now, I am nowhere near having children right now in my point of time in life, <laughs> but I know that things can turn in a millisecond. Like life, your life can just throw a curveball at you and things can change. So just this idea that my mother tongue ends with me, just no thank you. It's, it's too important. That's the extent of the importance. Now I know that my mother tongue, Theoju, is not a dying language. It exists all around the areas where we have migrated. Um, my family in Vietnam, all these young people, they speak it as well. But it's true that a lot of young people who are outside of the region that the language comes from don't speak it very well. So just trying to learn it, revive it, is something that I'm super, super passionate about. There we go. So that encapsulates thinking about my future and the next generation. And those two points together, desire for community and thinking about my future and the next generation is part of the key point, how I overcame my identity issues. There we go. We finished point one and point two. Lily, I was wondering if you had any comments. Oh my goodness. You are a masterful storyteller. And you do our community proud. I'm literally sitting here in tears because I think those of us who are the children of immigrants, as I had said, I'm the 1.5 generation, so came very young from Taiwan. My parents originally from China. So to find another member of this tribe, oh, my heart is full. I can't wait to hear our audience members. We have so many distinguished scholars and linguists who have joined us. It, this is going to be such a powerful room. Thank you, Pona. I'm going to just cry for a little bit, please. Feel free to do so. Crying is one of my favorite things. <laughs> After I learned, I mean, my mom has always let me cry, which is something that I'm forever grateful for. She never told me to, well, she sometimes tells me to stop, but um, essentially, if it's, uh, if I need to cry, she, she'd always just said, you know, let it all out. It's good for you. Let it all out. And when she said that and gave me permission to do so, it's, it feels so good. And then I take a nap after and it would just be the best nap ever. 
I'm crying tears of joy to have found a younger member of this tribe who, like me, is trying to be an activist. And um, I'm just so proud for you and of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lily. Okay, so I'm going to take this time to sort of reset a little bit. This is the Lingua Cultura Experience Conference. You're listening to the session Canadian Born Chinese with the subtitle Rebuilding the Bridge to Identity. We have just finished number one, what were my identity issues? And number two, how I snapped out of it or overcame it. We're going to move into the third section called Rebuilding the Bridge. And this is where it gets all exciting. There are two parts of this key point as well. The two parts are overcoming shame and fear of embarrassment. And the second part is beautifully titled liberation. We all love that word. All right, so let's start with overcoming shame and fear of embarrassment. Now, I'm going to start with this. If you are a language teacher or a learner, you know very well that speaking a language you aren't fluent in can make any adult, regardless of how many PhDs or whatever they have, feel absolutely stupid. It brings out our fears of embarrassment. We think everyone's going to judge us. It's so, oh my God. I've taught many interesting clients before. One of my higher profile clients was I lived in Quebec City for a year and I taught English at the Canadian government to some of the employees there. And that was such an amazing experience. Another client that I had, she was the director of a school. And yet when she, when she told me that oh, when she speaks English, she doesn't feel like she has all of the credentials that she has. She feels like a child. <laughs> so that's what speaking another language can do to people sometimes. It just brings out these humongous fears. And so, and I didn't realize that I had this in myself as well. It, was it took a long journey to realize that this fear existed within myself. What I used to do was I used to state confidently that I don't speak Chinese. You know, that it was not something that I'm interested in. Like, I just don't do that. I was born here. I speak English. This is all I need. I can go anywhere in the world and everybody will speak my language, right? But I didn't realize at the time that underlying that was so much hidden shame. So let's compare two interactions. The first interaction, a random person at a party or an event asking me, hey, do you speak Chinese? What that would get out of me was an angry response. And what I realize now that it was an angry defense mechanism. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, like, is it because I'm Chinese? Because I look Chinese? You think I have to speak Chinese? You know, but again, underlying that was just so much hidden shame. The second interaction that we're going to compare is an older Chinese woman coming up to me in public in the hopes that I can help her find directions or something like that. And I have to be there saying, oh, no, 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 I'm so, I'm so sorry, I, I can't, I can't help you, right? So it's the same question, do you speak Chinese? But coming from different people, I have a different reaction to it. And that was very, very eye-opening to see that. And I guess with the, with the older Chinese woman, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this could be my mother. 
this could be my grandmother, this could be my aunt, right? And for anyone who grew up with parents that didn't have English as a first language, you know the work that you had to do to help them when you were younger. So for example, and I'm still doing this now, I am my mother's personal translator, personal secretary, personal administrative officer who has to summarize and simplify key points in letters that she gets in the mail. I'm her personal financial assistant and the list goes on. I started reading mortgage, mortgage statements at the age of 16. Didn't understand a word, but they were shoved under my face. Like, hey, what does it say? <laughs> but somehow, these skills are not acceptable to put on a resume. I don't know, riddle me that one. But um, <laughs> anyways, being able to speak your dominant language while everyone else accommodates you is a form of power. And that was a power that I did not want to relinquish. But I knew that if I wanted to heal myself and get back to my roots, I had to humble myself and just start feeling stupid and making mistakes. So after 20 years of speaking only English at home, I finally started to speak my mother tongue. And because I started doing it, my sister started trying too. And it's been so amazing because now when we talk to each other, we throw words in, in our dialect that don't exist in English. Because languages are so complex, there's so many words that, you know, like there's one word for a whole sentence, for example, or just one thing that has no translation. But that's how our minds work. We have this idea of these concepts because we know that other language. So when we're speaking English, and there's something that we just need to say in the Oju, our dialect, because it just captures the essence so much more. We will just throw it in there. And it's so much fun. And at first I thought my parents would laugh at me, but they embraced it. And it improved our relationship. It helped bridge some of the cultural and generational differences. And I'm so grateful that I started to speak it again before we went back to Vietnam to see our family there because then I was able to communicate with them as well. And what I realized is that I still have the tongue to pronounce words that don't exist in English. If you weren't here at the beginning, the Odu is my native tongue. It's the language that I spoke before I learned English. So I still have the ability in my mouth and tongue to pronounce certain sounds that don't exist in English, that exist in that dialect, and I can still use them today. Whereas my sisters, they were born after me and I spoke English to them right away, so they don't have that. They have a bit of an accent, but it's still all right. And no matter how much we try and speak our dialect, my family in Vietnam still calls us the white kids. <laughs> Just the funniest thing. Yeah, and there's a funny side note here that touches on the effect of immigration as well. So I mentioned before that my mother infuses all kinds of different languages when she speaks without realizing it. And at first I thought she only did that with us, like especially with English. She'll add English words when she speaks Chinese or our dialect, I should say. Um, but when we were in Vietnam and she was talking to my aunt who speaks no English and she used an English word and had to correct herself. And the word was computer. So she's speaking in our dialect, blah, blah, blah. And then she just throws in the word computer. 
there is a perfectly good word for computer in our language, but she threw it in anyways. And that I found that so interesting, how she doesn't realize that even in herself, like there's aspects of, there's probably a, a scientific name for this in linguistics or something that people, when people do that, but I just don't know it. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm not one of those people that studies these types of things. But anyway, she does that. Um, and as we got older, we were finally deemed old enough to hear some of the immigration hardships that my family went through that I outlined uh, close to the beginning of this talk. And it's true that as an adult who has done so much work on myself, I appreciate those stories so much more. And I appreciate more where I come from than if my parents were to have told us those stories before. Because if they had told me those stories before, it would have been like, oh, whatever, I don't care. I just want to do my hair or something like that, right? So as an adult, I appreciate those stories so much more. I understand more my roots, where I come from, and it's been wonderful. And so that those are the points that um, are under the subheading, overcoming shame and fear of embarrassment. I just have to jump in here and say that Una has absolutely reflected and demonstrated your vision for this conference. Her journey and the importance of multilingualism, her storytelling was brilliant. She has done you proud and we have found a new member of our tribe. Just to give a little recap, I just finished talking about my third point. I have put the three key points that I am talking about today and we are on the third point, rebuilding the bridge. I just finished talking about how I overcame my shame and fear of embarrassment speaking my native tongue. The other part of rebuilding the bridge is called liberation. And like with the visualization of doors that I was mentioning before, it did feel like I was reopening a door in my brain that I had been trying desperately to hold shut for years because I was trying to assimilate. And it was so liberating to be able to just let go of that door, let it spring open, because it's so exhausting pretending to be someone we're not. It's so much easier to just be who we are, embrace who we are, not let anyone tell you, and even if they're not telling you just what society tells you, <laughs> not let anyone tell you how you should define yourself, and live in the ways that feel the most authentic to you. So even though my primary language is not the language of my ancestors, hearing my language, the the Adu dialect, is like music to my soul. I understand it right away without needing to do the translations in my head that you normally have to do when you are learning another language. And the cadence and musicality of the language makes me feel at home, no matter where I may be in the world. And to me, like that is just the power of language, just opens, and in my case, reopens that door to a whole life and a whole history that I was trying to hold shut for years. So yeah, that basically sums up um, liberation and the point of rebuilding the bridge. So yeah, I'll just re, re, uh, recap what I talked about today. There were three points, my identity issues, how I overcame them, and how I rebuilt the bridge. So thank you so much for listening. And Lily, if you had any comments after that last bit, you can go ahead.
I am still recovering from the tears of joy. I am older than you, so I took this journey because my parents had come in that wave of immigrants to come, you know, escaping civil war in China. So to be able to see a younger colleague, a younger friend, a younger sister like you really value our roots and honor our heritage is so, so inspiring. And I thank you for sharing your powerful storytelling today. Amazing. So I just want to thank everybody for coming today. I want to thank my amazing co-moderator, Lily, for joining me today and giving us all of your insight. And thank you to everyone who is up on stage and who came to listen. And uh, yeah, I hope you'll check out all the other sessions here at the conference. Just thank you. Thank you so much.